Lord, just enable us to see more of Jesus tonight and to live closer to him than we've ever done before. Because we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Right, we're uh, proceeding with uh, our subject of salvation, past, present and future. And you'll remember that at this point in the course that we're doing, we're on what I've called present salvation. You'll remember that I've shown you thus far that salvation, because it applies to us and because we are placed in time, it has a past tense, a present tense and a future tense. It's concerning our past, our present and our future. And we open the course by spending a great deal of time on what I called past salvation. And past salvation is to be delivered from the penalty of sin. And we saw that that is accomplished through the death of Jesus. We then moved on, and it's where we are now, to see that God doesn't just want us to be set free from the penalty of sin, but he actually wants to set us free here and now from the power of sin. And therefore, this is what we're on now, present salvation, being delivered from the power of sin, because it's going on all the time, it's happening now. And present salvation isn't because of the death of Jesus, it's because he was raised from the dead, and because he is now actually alive. And then we're going to move on to future salvation, and to see when the time is going to come, that we will actually be set free then, from the very presence of sin. And that we're going to see is through Jesus' return. <coughs> and you'll remember the biblical terminology that we've put on these things. Past salvation from the penalty of sin by Jesus' death is justification. Present salvation from the power of sin through Jesus' life is sanctification and future salvation delivered from the presence of sin through Jesus' return is called glorification. Now we are doing sanctification, seeing how the Lord works in us to bring freedom from the power of sin in our lives. And this, as we've seen, is because Jesus is alive and because for those who have turned to Jesus, he actually lives in us and he wants to live through us. And we're seeing that by simply believing this to be true, simply realising that by abiding in Jesus, the power of sin can be cut away from our lives, that through that simple abiding, we can have this experience of progressively becoming free of the power of sin. Now, if you turn to Philippians 2, Philippians chapter 2, and in fact, the passage that we're going to read, we're going to spend two studies on this, one tonight and one the next time. And in Philippians 2, and I'm going to read verse 12 and 13. <coughs> and this is Paul speaking. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you, both to will and to work 
for his good pleasure. And what we're going to do tonight and the next time is we're actually going to look at this thing, work out your own salvation. And I'm going to show you how you can do that. Now that sounds a bit daunting, work out your own salvation. You've got to find out exactly what it means. Now these two verses can be used as the classic example of how different Christians latch on to different emphases in the Bible. And it's always very dangerous to do that. Uh, Paul the Apostle said that he declared the whole counsel of God. And to do anything less than that is going to lead to imbalance. Never get too much into particular emphases. Make sure you're getting progressively into the whole truth. Now what I want to do with these verses is to show you the two divergent teachings that come from these verses. And they're completely contradictory. All right. And of course, when you emphasize one aspect, it's to the detriment of all the others. Now, let's look at verse 12, because there is a large selection of Christians in the kingdom of God, that verse 12, this is their verse. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation, with fear and trembling. Now these Christians, they say, you got saved by believing on Jesus, but now you've got to live a holy life. And they say, it's down to you, boy. Work out your own salvation. That's what my Bible says, they say. And they rather attack it like a, math, you know, like a maths exam. Because if you're sitting a maths exam, you have to work it out for yourself, don't you? And these Christians come along and they dive into verse 12 and they say, now come on, look, it's, it's down to you. The Bible says work out your own salvation. But they're not content to leave it there because they then point out, it says with fear and trembling. Now, of course, it's with fear and trembling because if you don't work out your own salvation, you will lose your salvation and end up in the lake of fire. So there we have the first group of people. They come along and they say, look, you know, it's, it's all down to you. You better do this. You better live a holy life because if you don't, your very salvation is um, at risk. So then, that's group A. Group B... They say, no, 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 no. Verse 13, that's got the truth in it. And they read, For God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now then, group A said it's all down to you to live a holy life. Group B say, it's, no, it's, it's all down to the Lord. All up to him. And these Christians are very passive they're very fatalistic, sort of caesarah, sarah, whatever will be. You know, it's that sort of, oh, I'm not worried, I trust the Lord, they say, which sounds very spiritual in some ways. But the problem with these people, with group B of the Christians, who home in on this verse, is that they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. And you, you tend to find with them that they're so over the moon about spiritual things that their feet never touch the ground. Um, I mean, they're the sort of Christians that I can only say, excuse me, but I have an appointment on planet Earth. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, just, they're just absolutely unreal. So then, what have we got? We've got group A. Now, group A teach that living a holy life 
It's 100% down to you and me as the Christians. It's on us. Group B say, no, no, no. It's 100% God. It's of him from start to finish, they say. We, we hardly figure in this. It's all of the Lord. All right. Now, in view of that, I've taken a verse of the Bible and I've given you two totally contradictory teachings out of it. And yet they're teachings which, I mean, you won't have to go far before you meet either one. You'll meet the Christians who emphasize what you have to do. You meet the Christians who emphasize what Jesus has to do. And somehow the equation is not quite right. It's not quite balanced. So what we've got to ask is, so what does this mean? If Paul says work out your own salvation, what is he getting at? Now, <clears throat> what we have to remember is that we are dealing here with present salvation. We are dealing with being set free from the power of sin in our lives. We are not talking about past salvation. We are not dealing with being set free from the penalty of sin. Now, it's very important for you to understand because this thing, when Paul says, do it with fear and trembling, and I'm going to show you why it's right that we do it with fear and trembling, but it's got nothing to do with, with, with ending up in the lake of fire. Because Paul is dealing here, not with how do you get saved from the penalty of sin, he's dealing with sanctification, how you get set free from the power of sin in your life. Now then, what I want to do is to take these verses in fact, in the reverse order, and to show you exactly what Paul is talking about. And this, this is a couple of verses, and there are some in the Bible, where unless you get to grips with the Greek, the original language they were written in, they don't make sense. So we're going to be homing in on a little bit of Greek tonight. Now, first of all, let's read verse 13. When Paul says, For God is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. So here we have the definite statement that in regards to sanctification or holiness, remember I showed you that sanctification, holiness, those two words come from the same Greek word, they're inter uh, interchangeable. That holiness, sanctification, being set free from the power of sin in our lives, in regards to that, we definitely see that God is working in us. The Lord is doing something. Now let's see exactly what the Lord is doing. He's working in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In the AV it says to will and to do. Alright? So we've got to will and we've got to work. Now we need to understand this. You see it's one thing to will to do the right. It's one thing to desire to be holy. It's yet another thing to actually be holy. Now, what we need to see, first of all, is that the very desire for holiness, the very desire to hunger and thirst after righteousness, you and I only have that desire because God gave it to us. So it's very important to understand. I desire holiness because God has enabled me to do that. He is working in me to will. God is, 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 if you like, affecting my desires. He is in control of what I want. Now, many Christians have the idea that because you're converted, because you have a new life in Jesus, 
that therefore you now hunger and thirst after righteousness and that is what God has done in you but they say it's now down to you to do what's right God has given you the will but it's down to you to do what's right now listen very carefully for God is at work in you both to will and to work so what we've got here is that it's not just a question of God working in us so that we desire holiness God is working in us to ena actually enable us to come to holiness so we're not just desiring it we're actually doing it if you just go to Romans 7 and keep your, your finger in uh, Philippians but just go to Romans 7 verse 18 and we'll see where Paul faced this dilemma Romans 7 and verse 18 and he says for I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh I can will what is right but I cannot do it alright so then we're seeing that Paul came to a point in his Christian life where he'd as it, as it were because he was a new creation in Jesus he was desiring holiness but realized that in his own strength there was no way he was going to get it and yet we saw in last studies how it is that Paul came to the point of realizing that it wasn't him who was supposed to do it anyway it was going to be Jesus through him so what we're seeing is God is creating the will to holiness in our hearts but he then moves on to work in us to enable us to actually do the holiness or to live a righteous life go over into Ephesians chapter 2 and I want to read verse 10 Ephesians 2 verse 10 and we read this for we are his now this is Paul talking about God for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them now can you see we are God's workmanship from start to finish he is the one who is doing the enabling work in us and this word workmanship in the Greek is poema and it's the same Greek word that we get poem from and it, it means specifically the making of a thing of beauty you see and if you like we are God's poem because God is expressing himself to the world through his people and we see here that we are created for good works and that God simply wants us to walk in them everything necessary for the doing of the good works has been done all it's down to us to do is to actually walk in them now we're seeing that God is working in us all right now we've got to now understand the Greek word that Paul says for uh, uses for work because when he says for it is God who work is at work in you the word he uses is energio and this is the Greek word that we get energy from but it's important to understand the specific meaning of that word and it means to be active or to be operative or to work in now I'll give you another picture of that if you make bread you have to get the yeast in it and you have to work the yeast into the dough in order to get the bread so there's the sense you're introducing something from the outside and you're working it in on the inside 
Can you see? The emphasis is that you're working something that was, was on the outside, you're working it in to the inside. Now that's specifically what this word means. It's God literally working something into us. And what we're seeing here, that here where God is at work in us, we're seeing that the energy source of all that we do in order to live holy lives, the source of that energy is God, and it's via the life of Jesus in us. God has worked the life of Jesus in us. And of course, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that he is seeking to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we no longer produce our own works. And it's only when we no longer produce our works that we are then out of the way and Jesus can then live his life and produce his works through us. Now, can you see that? The important thing to see when Paul says, for God is at work in you, this is specifically meaning that God has worked something into us. That's the specific meaning of the word energia. Now, having said that, let's go now to verse 12, the verse in front. When Paul says, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. <coughs> now, what Paul is saying here is literally this, that in our Christian lives, we must work out what God has worked in. Can you see that? When Paul says, work out your own salvation, he's not in the slightest saying, this is all down to you. He's saying, you must work out of yourself what God has already worked into you. Now, what is it that God has worked into us? Jesus. Jesus is in us. And that what Paul is saying here is, let Jesus live through you. This phrase, work out your own salvation, allow to come out of you what God has put into you. And God has put Jesus into us. Therefore, this phrase, work out your own salvation, is really another way of saying, let Jesus live through you. And what we're going on to see is that there are certain things that we must do to enable Jesus to live through us. So then, the word here for work is katergazomai. All right, we saw the first one. When Paul says God is at work in you, that's energio and means working into something. When Paul says work out, that is katergazomai, and it means to effect by toil. Now, there's a very important difference between this word and the other one. Because katagazomai does not mean to originate a work. It means to bring into effect an already accomplished work. Now, can you see the difference? Energio is to originate the work, to actually work it in. But this word means simply to bring into effect something that has already been accomplished. So then, in verse 12, we have um, what we do. We must work out, all right, we must allow out of us what God has worked in. Mm -hmm. 
And in verse 13, we have God's work, and that is to work into us. So that what we've got, God has worked Jesus into us. Therefore, we must cooperate with the Holy Spirit in order for Jesus to live through us. Mm. Having said that, let's read through these two verses again, and you'll start to get the idea and the balance. He's saying, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul is saying, cooperate with the Holy Spirit in what he's doing in you. Allow Jesus to live through you. For God is at work in you. For God has already worked the life of Jesus in you. Now, can you see that? Mm. We've got here two types of working we've got the fact god has worked holiness because jesus is holy god has worked holiness into us therefore we must work holiness out of us in jesus god has put righteousness and holiness in our lives through cooperating with the holy spirit we must let jesus live through us so what we're seeing here there's a work that God has done, but because of the work God has done, there's the work we must do to allow it to be manifested. So we see God is at work, and therefore we are at work as well. Now, in John 5, verse 17, Jesus says some very interesting words. He says, My Father is working still, and I and working. Now can you see that? Jesus realized that his father was originating everything. Jesus was simply being the channel. So he said, my father is working, therefore I am working. Jesus was simply allowing out what God had put into him, you see. Now in exactly the same way, we must say God is working in us, therefore we are working. But we are working not to be holy. We are working to cooperate with the Holy Spirit so that the life of Jesus can be manifested through us. And that what we're going on now to see is that there are things that we must do in order for the life of Jesus to be manifested through us. Remember last time I was saying, Jesus lives in us, but we are in the way. We looked at that study about brokenness, seeing that it's only when you break something, if you break the, 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 um, the nut, the kernel, that you get to the nut. So God has to break us in order for the goody bit inside Jesus to be able to come out. And we're going to be looking, in regards to working out our salvation, we're going to be looking at the things that we must do that help to keep us and our sinful natures out of the way. Remember, if you like, our fundamental motto for this series is you can't, but he can. Mm, So we cannot be holy, but Jesus can be holy. But our concern is to stay out of the way so that Jesus can live his life unhindered through us. So then, we cannot live the Christian life. Jesus can. We must therefore stop working in that sense we must cease originating any kind of holiness of our own 
But you may say, isn't that like the people who earlier on I parodied, who say, oh, well, I'm not worried because it's all down to Jesus. But you see, the point is this, that when I say that Jesus must live the Christian life and we must stop living the Christian life, when I say that, I am not talking about passive inactivity. It's not just a question of putting your feet up and letting Jesus get on with it. It doesn't work like that. Now you remember a few studies ago, we saw the picture that the writer to the Hebrews gave the church. And he was showing them that because God had created the universe in six days, on the seventh day he rested because there was nothing else to do. God created the whole universe in six days, then he stopped, he rested because there was nothing more to be done. And we saw that in exactly the same way, Jesus has done absolutely everything needed on the cross for us to be fully sanctified. So because there's nothing else to be done, we must cease from our own works. We cannot be holy, only Jesus can, but we must rest from our attempts at being holy. But, bearing that in mind, in Hebrews 4 verse 11, the writer says something very interesting. Remember, he's saying to them, there is nothing for you to do in regards to living a holy life because Jesus is going to, he's, he's going to do it through you. In the same way God finished creating and resting, so you must rest from trying to be holy because Jesus has done it all. But he says something fascinating. Let us strive, therefore, to enter that rest. Now this is extraordinary. Because what the writer is saying is that this doesn't mean that we are inactive. He says there's work for us to do to actually get to that point where we are resting and Jesus is living his life through us. So we're seeing it's not inactivity at all. Let us strive, therefore, to enter that rest. Work out your own salvation. We're looking at that which must be done in order for us to cooperate with the Holy Spirit so that Jesus can live his life through us with us and our sinful natures out of the way. Now bearing that in mind, go to Colossians for chapter 1. And we're going to start reading from verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the divine office which was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now made manifest to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Can you see that? Sanctification is Christ in you, Jesus lives in you. Him we proclaim, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man mature in Christ. Now here in verse 29, Paul is now going to tell us what he does in order to make the reality of Christ in him actually happen 
and manifest itself in his own experience. Listen to what he says. For this I toil, striving with all the energy which he mightily inspires within me. Now let's actually go through that, because we're now going to learn from Paul what you and I have to do in order to be a disciple of Jesus and to work out our own salvation, coming to a progressive freedom from the power of sin in our lives. First of all, he says, for this I toil. So we see immediately, Paul is not one of these, you know, kind of put your feet up, well I'm trusting the Lord, it's all down to him then, at all. Paul realises there's something for him to do, and he says, I toil. Now this word toil, kapio, and it means painstaking toil. It doesn't just mean a little bit of toil here and there, a few odd jobs. It means painstaking toil. It means a slog. And in the Greek, it implies that sometimes it's wearisome and sometimes it is unpleasant. And then he goes on striving with all the energy. Striving. Agonizomai. I expect you can imagine which word we get from that. Agonizomai. Agonize. It means to fight or it means to contend. There's a battle on. And you'll remember, we've already looked at Galatians 5 and verse 16 and 17 when we've read where Paul writes that the spirit is warring against the flesh to prevent us from getting what we want. The Holy Spirit is all the time battling away with our sinful natures. And our sinful natures are all the time battling away with the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, you know, striving, this fight is on with sin in his life. And the form that the fight takes is that we must cooperate with the Holy Spirit, but not cooperate with our unbelieving hearts. Then he goes on, striving with all the energy. Now this word energy, we're back to energio, alright? Remember it specifically means to work into something. And here Paul is talking that he's enabled to, to toil away. He's enabled to fight this fight because of the work and activity of God himself. It's by the very power of Jesus that Paul is able to maintain this battle and maintain this striving because Jesus lives in him. I, in the verse before, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then he says, which he mightily inspires within me. And this mightily is dunamai, which is a form of dunamis from which we get dynamite. And it's talking here about the power or the dynamite, or if you like, the dynamic of God's energy and power in Paul. Now, let me put that together and give you a very literal translation of this verse 29. And it literally comes out like this. I painstake, and this is Paul talking about his present salvation, talking about sanctification. He says, I painstakingly work at it to the point of exhaustion, battling away and agonizing over it, being empowered to do so by the dynamic of God's energy and activity in. So can you see now what it means to work out your own salvation. 
we are talking about that which we must do to cooperate with the Holy Spirit rather than to cooperate with our sinful natures. And let me say now why that fear and trembling is there. Because we do need to do it in fear and trembling. Now, let me say, when the Bible talks about fear and trembling in relationship to the believer in God, all right, and, and, and fearing the Lord, we're not talking about blind terror because something really evil is going to happen to you. I mean, we're not talking about that. Fear and trembling represents the awesomeness, the seriousness of what we're doing. And you see, the point is, we must work out our salvation carefully and properly and in fear and trembling because if we don't we are going to lose reward at the judgment seat of Christ now we're going to come on to that in a later study but that's why the fear and trembling is there because each one of us will give account for our Christian lives and we will be rewarded or not rewarded according to our faithfulness to God so then where have we come We've seen that in regards to past salvation, being set free from the penalty of sin, that that was 100% the Lord. Nothing for us to do except receive it as a free gift. 100% the Lord. But now, when we're talking about present salvation, being delivered from the power of sin in our lives, or sanctification, some Christians say it's 100% you. Other Christians say it's 100% the Lord. Both of those are wrong. It's 100% the Lord and 100% you. But if you only put 10% into it, well, that's all the Lord's going to get out of you. Can you see? So there's a real sense in which everything needed for a holy life is there. But it really is in that sense up to us as to how faithful we want to be. So it's 100% Jesus and 100% us. And remember, the key word in this is cooperation. All the time we're cooperating. But we're either cooperating with our evil hearts of unbelief, and I'll refer you back to our study through the wilderness a few weeks ago, we're either cooperating with our evil hearts of unbelief, or we are cooperating with the Holy Spirit. And when Paul tells the Philippians to work out their own salvation, he's urging them to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to enable the life of Jesus to be revealed through them. Just go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and we'll read again that verse that we read earlier. Ephesians 2 verse 10 For we are his workmanship his poem, his work of art literally for we are his work of art created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now look we're created in Christ Jesus. We are new creations. Jesus lives in us. And the reason that that's happened is for us to perform good works. And do you remember what Jesus said? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He says, 
but these good works which God prepared beforehand. Every righteous thing that the Lord wants to do through you has already been planned out in advance. But he's saying you must walk in them. Can you see what I mean? It's up to you how you decide to walk. You can walk in fellowship with Jesus or you can walk out of fellowship with Jesus. It's a question of who we cooperate. Do we cooperate with ourselves and our sinful natures or do we cooperate with Jesus? So we're going to move on from here now and I'm going to take it on the assumption that you want to cooperate with Jesus, that you want to work out your own salvation. And we're going to see things that we must do in order for that process, if you like, to happen. We're going to look at what we're responsible for doing so that sanctification, holiness, the life of Jesus can start to manifest and be brought into effect in our lives. And then what I'm going to do is to give you two keys. All right. There are many things we could cover. Obviously, there's a time limit on all Bible study that we do. But we're going to look at one thing this time and another thing the next time. And I think they are the two most important things. There are two keys that are going to unlock the door to sanctification for you. And it's not going to be a question of one or the other. It's got to be both working together or it's a waste of time. And we're going to do key number one tonight and key number two next, next time. But if you, just to show you the importance that it's got to be both keys all the time, I expect you've, you've seen these films which, uh, you know, when you get mad American generals who, who break into the atomic missile silos, you know, and threaten to blow up the world. And, that. and sometimes you see documentaries, you know, about these, you know, these kind of rockets that have got all the warheads in. And of course, because they're so dangerous, there's no way that the security system allows any one man to press the button. And that what normally happens is that to launch a missile, there are two keys, and two soldiers have one key each. But the missile can only be fired when both keys are put in simultaneously and turned. And of course, the, 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 where you put the keys in are you know, right across the other side of the room, so you can't get one man who puts them both in. They require two men, and only the use of both keys simultaneously enable the missile to be launched. And in exactly the same way, it's only when we put into effect the two things we're going to home in on simultaneously that we're going to see sanctification become a reality in our lives. So then, the first one, key one tonight, and go to 1 John 1 and verse 9. One John 1 and verse 9. And this is the Apostle John, and he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now then, this is for believers, alright? This verse has got nothing to do with being saved from the penalty of sin. That is once and for all settled. If you've believed in Jesus... The penalty of sin in your life is settled. It was carried out on Jesus. It was once and for all, and that is absolutely unalterable. 
all our sins are gone we are credited with the righteousness of Jesus all right we will go to heaven when we die no matter what we are not dealing here with issues of eternal salvation that is purely to do with past salvation we here are dealing with present salvation but what we are going to see most importantly is this that even though our past salvation is settled unalterably and once and for all nevertheless in regards to present salvation or now when we sin we immediately put ourselves out of fellowship with God relationship wise and I'm going to show you that it's quite possible to live any amount of your Christian life you want completely cut off from God now I repeat we are not talking about being separated from God in regards to heaven it's, that is settled once and for all in past salvation but relationship wise we can be separated from God cut off from him out of fellowship with him go to Isaiah and chapter 59 we've seen these verses already in this course but we're going to see them again <coughs> behold the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear now remember this is God speaking to Israel his people but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you so that he does not hear do you realize that even as a Christian you can be separated from God do we realize that even though we're Christians there are times when God hides his face from us and he does not hear us bearing that in mind Psalm 66 verse 18 I'll read it to you if I regard iniquity in my heart the Lord will not hear me now it is as simple as that if I regard iniquity in my heart the Lord will not hear me unconfessed sin the Lord isn't listening anymore go to Galatians chapter 5 again this is a verse we've already seen but um and this is Paul talking to some Christians who have gone back and put themselves under the law again but this is what he says you are severed from Christ and he's talking to believers you are severed from Christ you have fallen away from grace that's Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4 you are severed from Christ you have fallen away from grace so what we've got to see is this though we are eternally saved in regards to the penalty of sin as we live our lives day to day down here we can be separated from God we can fall from grace we can be severed from Christ in a relationship sense and that what I want to show you is this that we can act as if we are in fellowship with God when in reality we are not in fellowship with God because what we have to understand is this 
if there is unconfessed and undealt with sin in our lives, we are out of fellowship with the Lord. And tonight is we're going to cover one of those areas where the Bible is prepared to be an awful lot more outspoken than sometimes we are. All right. Because we're going to cut through a certain amount of tosh tonight. There's a lot of tosh goes on yeah. in the so-called Christian life. And the Bible really does cut right through the tosh. Now, you see, the thing is this. There is a biblical term given for people who act as if they're in fellowship with God when they're not in fellowship with God. I will give you that biblical term. It's a theological word. It comes from a Greek word, Hippocrates, and it's hypocrite. If we act as if we are in fellowship with God, i.e. carrying on as if everything's fine, when in fact we're out of fellowship with God, the Bible says we have been hypocrites. And it's interesting because hypocrite, this Greek word, Hippocrates, is the Greek word for an actor. And the reason it's such a good word is because in the East, you know, sort of during ancient times, I mean, acting was a bit different than it is today. I mean, like you turn the telly on, you see acting. But in the olden days and in the East, what they did is that the actors had different masks. And every time they changed character, they put the mask of that character in front of them. So all the time the actors were there with a mask representing the person, the people they were playing in the play. Now, what a perfect description. Isn't it easy to put our spiritual mask on, you see? Pretending that everything is fine, that we're right in fellowship with God, when in actual fact we are not. And that what we've got to turn to now is what the Bible talks says about repentance and confession. This is absolutely vital, and without this, we're just not going to get anywhere in our Christian lives. Because we're going to see that as Christians, we must be living in continuous repentance and continuous confession of sin. First of all, repentance. Now, the Greek word is metanoia, all right? comes from two different Greek words. Meta, which means after and implies a change. And noia, which means to perceive. And noia comes from the Greek word for the mind. Now, repentance, metanoia, the literal meaning of the word is to perceive afterwards. To perceive afterwards. Or to realise something after it's been done. Can you see that there's a change of mind literally involved? Now, in the biblical sense, this word, metanoia, what it means is to realise that you have done wrong. And then to change your mind about it. It doesn't just mean to realise you're wrong. There are many, many people who do things that they realise are wrong. They couldn't care less about it. It's to realise you've done wrong and to change your mind about what you've done. <coughs> and that the process involved in repentance is this. You move from the position of it's all right, to the position of, it's not all right. Can you see, that is repentance. Yes. When you move from, it's all right, and justifying it, yes. to, it's not all right, that is wrong. Yes. And that in repentance, you make a moral judgment on yourself. 
but the verdict is guilty when the verdict is not guilty that's not repentance but when the verdict is an unqualified guilty then that is repentance now that will lead to our second word confession now then to confess and this is the verse we're in 1 John 1 9 confess your sins the Greek word is homologio again from two Greek words it's kind of how the Greeks wrote things homo which means the same that should be obvious with uh, all the Anglican gay clergy in the news at the moment homo the same and logio to speak all right and it literally means to say the same as so homologio confession literally means to say the same as now it's important to realize that emotions are not necessarily involved in this at all they may or they may not be but it doesn't matter all right this is not primarily an emotional thing we're talking about a moral act of the will a moral act of the will and that simply you agree with God that that thing is sin can you see what I'm getting at you call it what it is you have sinned <coughs> and you realize you have sinned and you admit that you have sinned with no qualifications or anything like that at all now it's important to realize that there can be no self-justification in this confession of sin with a but attached at the end is not true confession of sin so that for instance oh lord i'm sure i'm you know i'm 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 sorry i resented them but my goodness what they that is not repentance or true confession all right repentance and confession is something individually between us and the lord now if i'm convicted of sin and i do notice this so far as i would say it's an actual spiritual principle that god only convicts me of my sin i i've never been convicted by your sin i only ever get convicted by my sin all right therefore if god convicts me no one else has any bearing on this whatsoever there are no ifs buts ands and excuses at all you realize you have sinned all right you realize that it is wrong and then you must admit to it with no self-justification whatsoever and after all say you have retaliated to somebody say they were rotten to you and you retaliated to them in a sinful way well when God convicts you of that retaliation he's not concerned about what they've done to you he's concerned about you he's concerned about your retaliation he'll sort them out but he is concerned only about our reactions so if you retaliate when you confess that you mustn't slip self-justification in by the back door about how rotten they were to you because then all you'll do is think you're back in fellowship with God when you're not back in fellowship with God and the mask stays on and hypocrisy remains the order of the day can you see how important this is it's where we must really have no mercy on ourselves at all we must be ruthless now also in regards to this because it's a moral act of the will don't wait until you feel sorry now lots of Christians go really wrong here 
is saying. The Bible tells us that as Christians, when we sin, we must repent and we must confess that sin. Repentance and confession is a matter of the will. It's a mental decision that you take. Emotions are neither here nor there. Now, for some things, if you were to wait until you feel sorry, you'll never say sorry. The point is simply this. If we sin, we owe the Lord an apology. It's as simple as that. We owe the Lord an apology. But not only that, the Lord himself commands us to do it. Acts 17 verse 30, God now commands all men everywhere to repent. So when you've sinned, and when you know that you've sinned, and you're out of fellowship with God, repent and confess that sin. Whether you feel sorry is neither here nor there. And think about it with your own children. They say you, you went round to a friend's house for dinner with your kids, and one of your kids was rude to your host. Well, I mean, you would tell that child to say sorry. And if the child turned around and said, well, I really don't feel sorry, and I don't think it would be a genuine expression of guilt, I mean, well, I mean, straight over the knee. The point is <laughs> that the child has done wrong, therefore it owes the host an apology. Now, can you see, we cannot have one standard for our children and another for us. When we sin, we immediately owe God an apology, and we immediately are commanded to repent. And you'll find that if you do that, merely as an act of the will, that your, your feelings would eventually work themselves out. I mean, there are things in the past that when I've done, I haven't felt sorry, I've had no emotions about them at all, but I've known they've been wrong, I've confessed them. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, I now find that if I slip into those sins again, I actually feel sorry. Can you see? Because if you do what is right with your will, the emotions will get themselves in the right order in the background. But never go by emotion, just do what is morally right according to what the Bible says. Now go back to 1 John, because we've got to see the context of this. We're seeing that when we sin, we're out of fellowship with God. And as soon as we confess that sin, we're immediately back in fellowship with God. The sin is gone. But we've got to see the context of 1 John 1 verse 9, because a very important qualification is coming now. Let's read verse 6 to 7. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not live according to the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Now once the apostle said that, he then goes on verse 8 and verse 9. But the context of verse 9 is fellowship with each other. And what we've got to see is that every promise of God in the Bible is conditional. And the condition of being restored back into fellowship with God when you've sinned is one that you confess it, but there's another provision that you have to meet first. And it's this ongoing fellowship with each other. And that what I've got to look at now is that there are different types of sin. Some, some sin is merely between us and God. But sometimes our sin affects other people. 
And that what we've got to understand is that when our sin has affected other people, it's not enough to just confess that to God. And that until it's confessed to those other people, you're not in fact back in fellowship with the Lord at all. Go to Matthew chapter 5 and see how Jesus illustrated this point. Matthew chapter 5. And we'll start reading from verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not kill, and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool shall be liable to the hell of fire. Now the context here is that Jesus is talking about uh, sort of when a relationship breaks down because of your anger, um, your intolerance or whatever. We've got here a breakdown of relationship. And he says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, i.e. that you've done him wrong, and he rightfully has something against you. Leave your gift at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Make friends quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out till you have paid the last penny. Now this is assuming your guilt. And Jesus is saying that when you come to the altar, or when you come to have fellowship with the Lord, if you know that someone has something against you, i.e. that you have sinned against somebody, don't presume to have fellowship with God. You can't have fellowship with God. And what Jesus says, you must first go and be reconciled to your brother. Only then can you be reconciled to God. All right. So what we're seeing this, and also he goes on to say about the judge and being put in prison, and in a later study, we're going to be looking at how God disciplines us as children, and we're going to be looking at various forms of judgment, and we're actually going to come on to see the judgment that God uses in us when we do not confess our sins. All right. That there is a judgment that... that we certainly face as the sons of God here and now. But the point is that we're seeing is that when you sin against the Lord, you must confess that to him. But when you sin against other people, you must confess that to the Lord, because all sin is against God, but also to those people you have sinned against. And you are not back in fellowship with God until you have done that. If you haven't done that, it's a sham. It's tosh. Tosh, I say. <laughs> right. We can, in fact, take our spiritual temperature now, while we're covering these things, to find out whether we're kind of spiritually healthy or whether we are a little bit ill. And as you can hear, I've been a little bit ill of late and, and, and had a temperature. So let's, take, let's find out about our spiritual health here. And you can find it out by reading off your relationship with other people. That's how you discover if you are spiritually healthy. By reading off the temperature of your relationship with other people. Go to Matthew 6 now and let's look at verse 14. Now this is just after the Lord's Prayer. Alright? It's not the Lord's Prayer anyway, it's the prayer he taught us to pray. 
Um, everyone stops at verse 13, all right? We need verse 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, can you see, we're not talking here about loss of salvation. We're talking about being out of fellowship with God relationship-wise here and there. It doesn't matter what anyone has done against you. If there is unforgiveness in your heart towards anyone, then God is not forgiving your sins. Can you see? You cannot be in fellowship with God whilst you are harbouring unforgiveness against other people. And again, let me emphasise that forgiveness is not a question of feelings. It's a question of the will. And that if people might have done dreadfully wrong things to you, but if you haven't forgiven them, you're out of fellowship with God. And it's as simple as that. Therefore, you must forgive men their trespasses against you in order to have an ongoing relationship with the Lord. <coughs> Go to 1 John chapter 2 now. And this is kind of the way that the Bible does cut through all the super spirituality. It's so, it's so black and white and down to earth. 1 John 2 verse 9 to 11. He who says he is in the light, i.e. right with God, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness still. Simple as that. He who loves his brother abides in the light and in it there is no cause for stumbling. But he who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Can you see, again, if there's resentment and hatred in our hearts against anyone, we are totally out of fellowship with God. And we are kidding ourselves if we think otherwise. Now remember, we've already seen, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And we need to understand this. If there is unconfessed sin in our lives of any nature, then from the moment we committed that sin, and from the moment that God convicted us of that sin and made us realise that it was wrong, after that, God is not talking to you anymore except to say one thing, and it's repent. If there's unconfessed sin in your life, that's all God's saying to you. All further communications are temporarily suspended, and only one comes through. Repent. Because until we repent, we're not in fellowship with God. Now, I don't know. I mean, you, I'm sure, know that feeling when, when you are under conviction. You have done wrong. You know you have done wrong, and God is convicting you. Now, you can kid yourself, all right, but God isn't saying anything to you except repent. And then there's the other trick we, put, we play. I've done it before. When you repent of everything except what God's convicting you of, and suddenly you get more repentful than you've ever been in your life. 
but you're not repenting of that one specific thing that God is convicting you of. You see, because that one specific thing is the only thing that matters for you and me at that time. And it's only when we've dealt with that that we're back in fellowship with God. And there's something else we need to realise as well. And it's this. You can carry on in the gifts of the Spirit all you like whilst being completely out of fellowship with God. Now this is tremendously important to realise because Christians justify themselves because they're moving in the gifts of the Spirit. We really need to understand what Paul teaches about this. You know in 1 Corinthians 13 you've got the great passage about love. And he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, and he lists all the things you can do, move mountains with your faith, receive all revelation, etc., etc., work miracles. And he says of all these things, but if they're not done in love, they're valueless. Now, let me say that Paul is actually teaching there that you can move in the gifts while not being in fellowship with God. Because if you couldn't move in the gifts unless you're in fellowship with God, it'd be stupid for Paul to give a chapter saying, but if you move in the, in, in the Spirit without love, it all avails nothing. So we know that we can even carry on with our charismatic carry-on whilst we're out of fellowship with God. It doesn't mean we're right with Him at all. You can, I mean, I can speak in tongues any time I like, regardless of whether I'm in or out of fellowship with God. So this is what we need to understand. We can put the sham on for other people, but finally you can never fool God, never ever fool the Lord. And if there's unconfessed sin, the only thing he's saying to you is repent of that sin. Now then, let me say that the Christian life really is the total opposite to a very famous book that came out by Eric Siegel some time ago, Love Story. And the cachet, the kind of the phrase from love, from love Story is love is never having to say you're sorry. I mean, that is megatosh. That is. That is the exact opposite of the Christian life. The Bible says, confess your sins. But remember, if you sin and then confess your sin, the condition for God forgiving you and you getting back in fellowship, the condition is verse 7, all right, that you're walking in the light and having fellowship with one another. So if you're out of fellowship with your brothers and sisters, and if they're sinning your heart against them, your personal relationship with God is totally up the kibosh until you're right with them. So you've got to fulfill verse 7 of living in the light with each other and being right with each other before you can claim that you're in ongoing fellowship with the Lord. So then, what does this boil down to? When you sin, it's 1 John 1 verse 9, alright, you must confess that to God. But if that sin has affected anyone else to the slightest degree, you must also confess that to them. And I know that's hard, but I know why it's hard. Pride. The only thing that makes that hard is pride. But it's tremendously good for us when we humble ourselves, because he who is humble shall be exalted. So we must do this. We must learn to put ourselves right with people 
when we sin against them. Now, when you have sinned against someone and you go and confess that to them, now, if, if, if they can't then forgive you, if they can't find it in their hearts to forgive you, or if they start lording it over you, or if they never let you forget it, that's their problem, all right? That, it's not your problem. Our responsibility is to be right with each other. If I sin against you and I come and I confess it to you and you tread me into the ground lording it over me, well, fair enough, that's not my problem. That's your problem. My concern is simply to be right with God personally and to be right with all those uh, whom I mix with day to day. But something else in regards to confession and repentance as well. Don't make a big thing of it. It's no big deal. It really is no big deal. I mean, sin is a daily ongoing problem. The Lord is perfectly aware of this. There's no need for us to make mountains out of molehills. This should be our normal day-by-day experience before God. So then, we're seeing how simple it is. We can maintain continuous fellowship with God. And that what we must come to learn is that as soon as we sin, we confess it. There is never any need to be out of fellowship with God for more than a few seconds at a time. Isn't that tremendous? And can you see that the less you're out of fellowship with God, the more you'll grow spiritually. But the longer you're out of fellowship with God, the longer it will take to mature. So if you're one of these people who it takes sort of 10 months to get around to saying sorry, well, you've got to start working on that. Can you see what I mean? Because I mean, it's kind of 10 wasted months in a way. Although even that is going to be qualified uh, during our next study. So then, 1 John 1 verse 9, key number 1. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And remember that when you do confess your sin, it's gone. So that if you come and say, Lord, I've done it again, he will say, "Uh, have have you done that before? See? Because there's no record of it. So can you see that we can maintain a continuous fellowship with God through confession and repentance continuously? It's what some people call keeping short accounts with God. And I think you can see from this that this particular key is so very, very simple. But the reason it's so hard, especially saying sorry to other people, It's because of our pride. So we've got to declare war on our pride. We've got to embrace this from the Word of God. And we've got to say, when a Bible says it, I am going to start doing it. And there was one Christian, I can't remember who it was, but uh, he said that, that to God I will show a heart of fire. To my fellow man I will show a heart of love. But to myself I will show a heart of steel. And that we've got to start being just that little bit ruthless on ourselves. Can you see? We've got to be softer on other people, but a little bit harder on ourselves. And I'll tell you, if large numbers of Christians in the kingdom of God started to be harder on themselves, but easier on others, I'll tell you, life would become very, very lovely. It really would be much easier to live the Christian life because of the surrounding love and support we'd be giving each other. So, work out your own salvation. 
cooperate with the Holy Spirit allow Jesus to live through you you've got to keep your sinful nature out of the way key number one 1 John 1 9 confess your sins to God and remember as well in the epistle of James confess your sins to each other that you might be healed so we must start practicing this daily next time key number two